It's time for episode 29 of the Clockwise Podcast from your pals at IDG, recorded March 19, 2014. Clockwise, four guests, four tech topics, 30 minutes. Welcome back to Clockwise, the podcast that has to be seen to be believed. I'm your co-host, Dan Morin, and sitting across this all-too-visual table from me is my co-host, Jason Snell. Hi, Jason. Hi, Dan. How's it going? It's going well. You're looking great today. Thanks. You look marvelous. Uh, And we're joined by a couple of extra special guests today. To my left is Macworld Senior Editor Chris Breen. Hi, Chris. Hello, Dan. Hey, you guys. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. And next to me is uh, Philip Michaels, editor of Tech Hive. Hi, Phil. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Each of us has brought a technology topic that we believe is worth discussing today. And because we don't want to waste our own time, or more importantly, your time, we'll spend just five minutes on each of those topics. So I'm going to go first, and then we'll move the action to the left. So the topic I want to talk about today was, you might have seen there was a big story uh, over at the uh, the 9 to 5 Mac guys uh, posted a lot of mock-ups of what they are claiming is in an app included in iOS 8 called HealthBook, which is sort of a central clearinghouse for all sorts of uh, health-related information, ways to track your weight or your blood pressure uh, or your diet, et cetera, et cetera. I think this is kind of an interesting idea, and it, it definitely seems like uh there might be a market for that What with all the fitness trackers we've seen, but it's made me in particular feel that it seems pretty solid that this this iWatch idea we've heard so much about probably is largely skewed towards the fitness side. So I'm curious to know what you guys think is the, uh, is the opportunity there and whether you think that's something that, that people will buy. Well, let me start this off by sharing too much information in the fact that I'm a hypochondriac. So um, the idea of having something monitoring my blood pressure and my respiration and my caloric intake and God knows what else scares the hell out of me. Um, that I will be glancing push, my watch push every notification the- when you're having a stroke. Is that what's going on? <laughs> exactly. Like 10 seconds till stroke. And um, so I see how this might be really helpful to a lot of people. Maybe to me. Maybe it will motivate me to get off my chair and actually do something. Uh, as, as far as the technology play, it makes a lot of sense, particularly since Google has just recently announced its new Android wearable tech that uh, will basically send bulletins from the phone in your pocket. And I assume that's pretty much what Apple's thinking about doing as well, using this thing as a monitor, but largely using it as a little terminal for your wrist. Could be cool. I think a lot of people will buy into it, particularly if they uh, make that beautiful Apple uh, look to the uh, to the design. Is, and that's kind of what we expect out of Apple. I think it's a good thing. People, there's obviously interest in this category, right? I mean, that we, we've seen that with... Uh, with uh, Nike Plus and Fitbits and all of those things. And so I think it's smart for Apple to say this is something we want to look at. I do wonder about this health book thing, though, in the sense that if if Apple creates a centralized place for anything, the risk is that everything else will dry up. The only places that you'll ever see anything will be in HealthBook. And if HealthBook doesn't do a lot of the things that people wanted to do, we're going to be in this weird place, but you know, between a rock and a hard place. That that was my first uh, thought about uh, about HealthBook when I saw that article. Was 
okay, what if Apple does a very simple approach that um, will be good for a lot of people, but then whether it's a certain kind of runner or somebody who's on a particular kind of strength training, what if their needs aren't specifically met by HealthBook? If it's not flexible, and let's face it, that's sort of Apple's history here, is that this stuff is not very flexible at first and it's kind of limited. I, I worry that that by putting everything in a central repository, uh, that it will uh, make it less valuable for everybody who's got a specific need uh, and it'll be too general. Yeah, uh, th- those are all um, uh, uh, strong points. I do think Apple is uh, well positioned given its history of uh, combining uh, software and hardware in one place to 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 really uh, uh, knock this one out of the park. And one of the more interesting products that I, I saw at CES was the um, the activity tracker that Sony uh, uh, teased there and then showed in greater detail at at Mobile World Congress. So obviously there's there's been a lot of movement on this. But just to to echoes Chris to echo Chris's thoughts. Uh, and I think I've mentioned this on a previous episode of Clockwise. Uh, there's there, there's such a thing as too much data. I'm I, uh, a member of my family is currently um, uh, uh, dieting and doing very well with uh, with a lot of these uh, uh, calorie counting apps, uh, and and they've they've taken off a, a lot of weight and they're feeling better. And each night they obsess over what lose it and the other. I, I forget the name of the other app they're doing because oh, it says I'm not getting enough protein. Oh, I'm getting too many carbs, and and it, it almost becomes paralysis by analysis. And that that that's the danger of these these types of apps where all this data is just a, a tap or two away and uh, you, you're not exactly sure what to do with it. Well, I'm having a lot of success with this app where I just log how many cookies I eat every day. It's really, mm. <laughs> really paying off for me. Uh, yeah, I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of good points you guys made. As someone who, you know, suffers from sort of borderline high blood pressure, it seems like a cool idea to be able to track that information. I don't know if that's something that Apple will be able to build into like a specific device or whether it's just like a place to record that information if you have some sort of device that, that can measure that for you but um to jason's point especially if they can make it work with these third-party uh available devices like your fuel band or your fitbit or something like that that seems to me like there would be a lot of potential in there but uh, we'll have to wait and see how that goes uh let's move right along mr breen do you have a topic for us today Yes, I do. Um, it seems that uh, it's, you may recall about a year ago, something came out called app.net. And this was a Twitter-like service that a lot of people jumped on initially, particularly people who were sort of tuned into the social networking and geek scene. And the idea at the time was that Twitter looked like it was kind of going down the path of Facebook. So they were proposing more intrusive uh, advertising, that they were going to cut off things to third parties and they were going to keep some of their own functionality to themselves. And a lot of people started looking at Twitter like, oh, man, it's going down the tubes. Up comes app.net ad-free, people are going to pay to belong to it, and a lot of us jumped into it. Well, the year's gone by now. People are being receiving notices saying, hey, your subscription is going to be renewing in just three days, so please sign up again. And some people have decided, you know, I don't really use this as much as I thought I would, and some people are leaving. I've chosen to stay. So I believe all you guys are part of app.net. I just wanted to get your take on it and see, are you coming back? And if not, why? And if so, why? I was happy that Stephen Hackett, who I follow on Twitter, posted a note uh, on his blog about 
how he wasn't going to renew app.net. And that prompted me to look at app.net and honestly log in for the first time in months and see that my account was set to auto renew in a couple of days. So thanks, Stephen. I turned it off and I went down to their free tier. Um, not because I'm opposed to what they're doing, but because in the end, it just didn't work for me. I There was an initial flurry, but every time I checked in over the past few months, and it's been uh, not very often, the uh, motivator for a lot of it, I think for a lot of people, was to find a fallback if Twitter was going to fall apart. And Twitter may yet fall apart, but in the meantime, Twitter, I have huge value um, in in spending time on Twitter. Uh, there are lots of people on Twitter. Um, I'm kind of broadcasting, because since I have a lot of followers, I'm reaching a lot of people that way. And and uh, I can have a conversation that I can't, you know, the app.net conversations were pretty quiet. And um, if it works for you, that's great. But for me, it was, uh, you know, being something like Twitter, but not Twitter was not good enough. Uh, and certainly not worth paying. So I still got my account there. It's a free account. Uh, but the issue was not me not wanting to pay and therefore abandoning it. It was me abandoning it just out of not using it and deciding why would I pay for something I don't use. I never signed up for app.net. I, I, I vaguely know what those words mean. Uh, it, 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 it seems like a nice idea, but it seems like it's trying to fix a problem that hasn't actually uh, uh, come to pass just yet. Twitter is perfectly fine for my needs. If an ad pops up in my my feed, I click that little dismiss box, and if if the the person that I if it's a, a promoted tweet from someone I really don't want to uh, read, I, I report them for spam. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, uh, I I I I wish the app.net people luck. I'm sure that there is value in it for for some people. I don't see the value in me. I certainly don't see fifty dollars worth of value. And I actually think there there might be one or two too many uh, uh, social networking services these days, and uh, um, I'm looking to pare down a few. Looking in your direction, Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll take a cue from right where Phil left off, like because I think that's why I stepped away from App.net, and it wasn't like I decided like oh I'm done with this. It was more just I got I got lazy and I was posting to Twitter a lot as it was, and so. It just seemed like, well, Twitter occupies most of my time. I don't need like a separate window to check all these things in again, especially because I tend to follow the same people. So why? <laughs> Maybe that's just too much of those people. Um, and I'm not a Facebook user. I, I really don't go on that much. And so, you know, Twitter for me has been sort of where it's at. And that's uh, that's good enough for me. So I, I did. I think I let my app.net subscription renew out of laziness because um, <laughs> I got that notification. I was like, oh, maybe I should unsubscribe. And then I forgot about it. Um, so I guess I'll have another year of app.net, but I probably won't be posting on it that much. So I think it was a good idea. And I think, you know, to their credit, they've tried to try and figure out ways to broaden support, like by not just being, okay, we're Twitter, but, you know, with longer messages, they've tried to, you know, leverage their platform so that they can have, you know, places for people to upload photos, um, you know, putting more power in the hands of the users and the developers, which I think is a worthy cause, but it may not be enough to let it sort of stick around from where it is right now. So I chose to re resubscribe willingly. Uh, the notification came in, yeah, I'm going to do it. And the reason is, is, you guys may not know this, but I get cranky every so often and complain. <laughs> no! And, uh, yes! I'm shocked. Shocking. Shocked. Shocking. Um, but I've been complaining for, for years about Facebook, and I left because I didn't like the intrusive nature of it, and I didn't like the fact that they were grabbing my information and, and basically selling it. Um, I didn't care for the direction that Twitter was going in, and I finally decided that I need to put my money where my mouth is, which is 
they are offering me a service that if I pay, they won't do awful things. And I think, particularly in our publishing business, we're seeing the same kind of thing. We get more intrusive advertising all the time because people don't want to pay for content. I thought, okay, I do want to support this kind of movement. I don't use it a lot. I think I'll try and, and use it more than I have been. But I sort of thought the right thing to do would be to, to support it because that's uh, that's kind of where I would like to see these sort of services go. So maybe I'm not getting my money's worth out of it, but I'm putting it toward what I think is a good cause. Okay, my turn. I want to talk about Haunted Empire, the book that just came out by Yukari Kane, uh, who used to be a reporter at the Wall Street Journal covering Apple. Uh, and she got some scoops and things when she was there. Now she has left the journal and has written this book, which is about the post-Jobs era at Apple. Now, I would argue that this is a fascinating time in Apple's history and that there is a good book to be written about it. And I think, in fact, I would say, if you want to write a good book with lots of reporting about how Apple struggled in the world after Steve Jobs, even when he was sick before he passed away, that that's fine. If you want your premise to be that Apple has lost its way, that Apple doesn't know how to deal with an, uh, a world where Steve Jobs isn't acting as the arbiter of, of what all their products are, that's fine too. The problem I have with this book is that it doesn't seem to know what it wants to do. The reporting, with a few exceptions, isn't that interesting. It's a lot of stuff that I think Phil referred to when we were talking about it as a clip job. There's a lot of uh, stuff we've heard before quotes from interviews we've read before. Anybody who's a close Apple watcher will have seen a lot of these pieces, and she assembles them. There's a whole bunch of stuff about lawsuits, which I find very boring, but she has assembled all the lawsuit information in one place and tried to give it a clearer through line. Uh, I think that's good. But, you know, there's no point to it in the end. It's not a very well-written book. Um, she says in her afterward that she's never written anything longer than about 3,000 words, and it shows. This is if, she, if, her, if her thesis was, uh, you know, is it that people are slavishly copying Jobs and they can't live up to him? Is it that they're trying to move away from Jobs' playbook, which is a mistake? There's nothing like that. It's sort of anything they do is bad, and it's evidence uh, in and of itself that Apple is doomed, which is not good enough. I, I think, especially since Apple still is increasing its device sales and incredibly profitable. So um, anyway, I, I don't think it's a very good book. I, I wanted to open it up to you guys. I know you guys probably haven't read the book. What do you think about, uh, what are the stories to be told about Apple post jobs, and where do most people in the media get the story wrong? Yeah, there, there probably is a story to be told. I'm not sure that now is the the time to tell it. They say that, that uh, newspaper reporting and, and journalism is kind of the first draft of history. And so writing a book about what's an ongoing story really is the, 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 the second draft of history. I, I, I think you kind of need more distance and more, uh, more uh, uh, years in between the topic to sort of uh, put it in its proper context. I, uh, sort of out of left field, I just finished reading a book that's the history of the Food Network, uh, which I'm, I'm sure is a fascinating topic for our listeners, but it's fascinating to me. And you can tell that the author is, is reaching the end of the book and he's about to wrap it all up neatly in a bow. And then the incident with Paula Dean last year in her lawsuit comes out and you can literally uh, see the author as he's, as he's in the last chapter go crud and, and like frantically rewriting and sticking in a hastily written epilogue. And, and, it, and the, the book kind of falls apart there. It's really hard to, um, to do this kind of topic. And I, I'm not sure that the definitive, Apple post-Jobs uh, history can be written um, 
when uh, Steve Jobs is uh, when, when all this is happening in living memory. Yeah, I mean, to, to Phil's point, it's not even two years or is three. it? Two, just, it's, just, sorry, just, just under three, just yes, under three. Yeah. So, yeah, like and, and this was being compiled probably before that you know, around the two year mark. Um, and so can it's you, even, you know, even earlier, there's, there's only mention of iOS seven in the epilogue. Um, so it was clearly r- done by last summer. Right. So in that case, you know, we're talking about, well, all right, let's take a company that's been around for more than 30 years. Uh, and is, you know, Hey, the last, that last year, like that's a, such a tiny percentage of the company. And of course the company spent a long time without Steve jobs in the middle there too. Um, it's tough. I mean, I haven't read the book. As as you said, I've read a lot of the reviews of the book, um, which often seem to jibe with what Jason's saying about there's just no there's no through line, right? There's no there's no central thesis or the ideas that back it up don't quite, you know, make sense or often work against each other. Um, and, and it seems from everything that I've read that this is one of those cases of shaping facts to fit a narrative. And that narrative may or may not be true. I mean, among other things, I think she alleges at some point that Apple's sort of fallen off being the most valuable company in the world, which it really wasn't until after Steve's had stepped down. So, you know, a lot of people like this idea of this narrative of Apple doom. It's really popular. It, you know, generates clicks. It sells books, what have you. But I don't think there's necessarily a lot to back it up in reality. And so it is a shame because I think there is an interesting book to be written here. Um, But it's also made a lot harder by the fact that the people who are the most interesting here are not the people who are ever going to submit to being interviewed for this kind of book, right? So, you know, you're kind of limited in that to begin with, and it gives you a certain amount of bias in terms of the people that you're talking to are probably the people who are either left because they were dissatisfied or have an axe to grind or what have you. Um, and along those lines, you know, there are things with, you know, Tim Cook came out and, and was, had some very harsh words as you might expect. And, and, uh, I read today that somebody, uh, emailed Eddie Q to ask him if there was a story in there about jobs throwing a pen at him, if that was true. And he replied, no. So, you know, obviously these people have their own vested interest in, in keeping things, uh, conforming to their own narrative, but yeah, it's tricky. It comes out looking a little bit more like a like one person's particular view of it. Right. It's a little like writing the uh, the history of the Obama administration now. It's a hot topic. Um, people would want to do it because it would generate sales now versus writing a book about the uh, Gerald Ford administration, <laughs> I for example. Um, yeah, but I mean, that's when the history is going to be worthwhile is 20 years from now when people are have gone uh, they're off the record or and they're willing to talk about their experiences, particularly with Apple, because Apple PR doesn't talk about anything they don't want to talk about. They're very, very particular about the message that goes out. So, of course, they're not getting great source material. But it's topical, so that's why they want to do the stories now, because it makes much more money than than it would otherwise. But um, I'm looking forward to the definitive Apple history 20 years from now. I hope I'm around to read it. But until then, I'm not sure that I would buy a book that claimed to know much about anything about Apple at all. Yeah, even the Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson is not so great in terms yeah. of that. It, it uh, His access is good, and so I think his book will be good fodder for the definitive Apple story that will come later, but it's not the definitive Apple story, and neither is neither is this book. And, and you're absolutely right. This is um, this is trying to find a, a, an answer you can tie up in a bow and say, ha-ha, I've got the answer about what happened with limited access and a lot of uh, kind of fog of, of war because these people are still working at Apple. And yeah, I think it's a it's a book in search of an answer. And, and it makes me actually question the value of a lot of nonfiction books about really current topics because 
you know, some of these chapters would have been good articles on the web, but once you do it at book length, um, sometimes that can really hurt you. I think it shows that that uh, the author had not written long-form stuff before. And then the delay. I mean, this book was largely written, you know, six months ago, a year ago. And I, I, I think for something this current events related, that was a mistake, too. So it's too bad. Uh, I'm sure there will be a fantastic book written about Apple at some point. This isn't it, for sure. All right, Phil, do you have a topic? I do. The whole world seems to have gone watch crazy uh, in the past 24 hours uh, as we talk about this. Yesterday, um, uh, uh, Google unveiled its Android Android Wear uh, uh, SDK, and, and a bunch of companies, Motorola, LG, are now uh, trotting out watches. And as people watching on the camera can see via my wrist, I'm, I'm not a watch guy. And I want to know from from you, watch guys, if this is a uh, game changer. Should I be interested in watches now? Watches. Well, it does seem like everybody's talking about it. And I looked a little briefly at that Android Wear concept, which seems more concept than device right now. Um, I I go back and forth. There were periods in my life where I wore a watch very regularly. Um, I find them handy when I travel um, because even though I've got my phone with me, which obviously has a clock on it, um, there is something convenient about being able to just quickly glance at my wrist. Um, but I, there were, there's also been many years where I haven't bothered and I really hasn't, you know, been a problem for me not to wear a watch. So I'm intrigued by the idea and I, I've got a pebble, which I've been trying to wear a little bit more, especially since their recent update, which expanded the capabilities and I like it, but you know, the more I use it, the more I feel like, um, it's not that it's, it's a category not worth looking into. Um, but I feel like, all right, we're in the very early stages of, of this now. We're kind of like in the, in the mid nineties, uh, smartphone world where it's like, all right, there's an idea that you might use that space for something, but I don't think anybody's quite figured out what it is or what it should look like. Um, and so uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's going to be the level of success that we've seen from either the smartphone or the tablet. Uh, I think at best this is kind of an accessory field, um, but it, it does lend this idea to you know having your smartphone as the hub for potentially many other devices that you own, um, and this seems like a prominent place for that. And I think as as wearables go, I feel like it might be more more commonplace, if not as radical as something like Google Glass, which I think is for most people might be you know right around the cutoff line. So uh, I, I'm interested, and I, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what all the major players decide to do in this space. But it may end up being something that is kind of a flash in the pan. I like watches for the same reason that I like cufflinks and spats, because I don't <laughs> feel that I'm fully dressed unless I'm out in public wearing them. So. Um, uh, no, I do like watches, but I do I like them for kind of that old timey feel. I'm not generally a watch wearer now. I have a couple of watches, and every so often when I get dressed up, I put them on along with the spats and the top hat. I do think there's a future here, though. Um, if they can make them small enough, thin enough, and not make them everything in the world devices, but really a nice little monitor display of whatever's happening in your pocket where it's useful that I can turn up. And most of the time, all I'm going to see is the time and maybe the temperature, although I don't even know I need to see that. Don't overload it with stuff. Define what this category really is instead of an everything device, but rather some a, a convenience where they talk about, oh, I need a quick glance at this, tap one button and I've got, or tap the screen and I've got the information that I need to get. I do think it's a, it's a, 
a device that's going to catch on. I think people are going to want to start wearing watches again. They're not going to feel like, oh, yeah, grandpa used to wear those things, but rather they're going to be a useful little accessory. Yeah, I, I think I agree with Chris. I have a I have a Pebble. Uh, and I like it. And I wrote an article about it where I basically said what I like about it is it tells the time. That's number one for a watch. And then the, the, the notifications that get pushed to it are, are useful. Think about it this way. We use tablets for things that we don't use phones for. Why is that? Because the screen is bigger. We use computers for things we don't use tablets or phones for because the screen's bigger and it's got a keyboard and a pointing device. I look at the watch as a place for information that doesn't require me to take my phone out of my pocket or go and find my tablet somewhere. It's information that's, uh, you know, shrunken down. It's not as important. So for me, it is things like, uh, somebody just sent you a text or, uh, you just got a Twitter message or here's the time, but also, um, like Google is showing Google now. So things like, here's what your next meeting is. You need to leave now if you're going to walk over there or drive there. Uh, here's how long it'll take you to get home. You usually leave for home about now, but if you leave now, it's going to take you an hour. So you might want to wait all of that stuff just sort of at a glance I think there's a place for that. I don't want a replacement for a smartphone on my wrist. I think some of the Samsung watches are like that. It's like it's got all the smartphone features, right? It's like too much interaction. I want to I want to have it on my wrist. The value there is so I can glance at it very quickly without taking a device out of my pocket um, the, or, or hunting for it around the house. And I think there will be value in that. Uh, and for different people, some people will prefer a fitness band. Some people will prefer uh, something that, that looks a little more like a, a traditional watch. I think there's something there. I don't think everybody's going to want one like everybody wants a smartphone. I don't think that's the case. If people are waiting for this to be the next smartphone size market, I think they're, they're going to be disappointed. But I do think there's a place for it because I do think there is some enhancement in your life in having some of that information at a glance instead of having to dig it out of your purse or your pocket. I like uh, some of the things I'm hearing about uh, about what Google is doing with Android Wear. It seems uh, it seems promising to me, uh, a fellow who up until now has not previously cared for for watches. Some of the productivity tools, and like Jason says, it doesn't have to be the everything device. Just something convenient and at hand that uh, that notifies me about the things that I don't want to reach into my pocket and unlock my my iPhone to get. Um, and I have to admit, I like the uh, I like the uh, design that Motorola trotted out with the the round face. I think that uh, that is uh, is pretty stylish because up until now, a lot of the smartwatches they've looked like kids' toys. Well, that's all the that's all the topics that we have uh, time for, except for our special bonus topic that is unrelated to anything we have just discussed. Allow me to tell you what it is. Uh, Phil, I heard you mention the uh, the history of the Food Network there, which I think ties in really well with my bonus question today. I'm curious, do you guys have a culinary specialty? Do you have a dish that you're particularly good at making? If you were if you were known for your one dish, what would it be? Chris, how about you? It's pizza. And the reason it's pizza is because Jason has this awesome pizza dough recipe. Uh, it, three years ago, I kept trying to make pizza and I couldn't come up with it and I couldn't do it right. And I got a pizza stone and it always came out tasting terrible. Then um, Jason kept posting pictures of pizza on Twitter, and I finally said, what, what do you do for your dough, or what do you do for your sauce? And he said, here is the recipe for the dough. And it makes the best dough and the best crust I've ever made. So since then, I make these things like once a week, and it makes two crusts, so actually I ended up having it twice a week. 
and it's just amazing. I don't, you should put that as part of the show notes, a, a link to the recipe, because it's really good. And people come over and say, wow, this is really great pizza. It's not like pizza parlor pizza. It's it's big and kind of thick and uh, and wonderful if you get the right sauce. And um, and so that's that's what I'm known for now. And thank you very much, Jason. Oh, you're you're welcome. I can't wait to hear what uh, things that I bake that Phil and Dan are going to talk about. <laughs> uh, I the thing that I've been really enjoying. I I, I make the pizza every week. Uh, the thing I thank you, Chris. I've been enjoying making um, buttermilk biscuits lately. I use a recipe from Alton Brown called healthier biscuits because they're not really healthy. They're just healthier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but my kids love it. I used to make waffles all the time for the for breakfast on the weekends, and the biscuits are better. I love I love making the buttermilk biscuits, and you, it's amazing that a, an incompetent baker like me can go from having just flour and butter and buttermilk, and you know, 20 minutes later there are these fantastic. They actually look like biscuits, and they've got different layers. And for those people not in the U.S. not in the U.S., these aren't cookies. These are they're like kind of like scones. They're southern cooking, U, southern U.S., and uh, they're great. And my kids love them, and uh, I love them too. So that's my current favorite. Oh, there, there, there are so many things. Uh, my, my family uh, likes it when I make uh, standing rib roast around the holidays. Um, I, I, I think I have uh, Thanksgiving turkey down to a science. Uh, there's a, there's a peppers and sausage thing that I do, which I, which I uh, very much enjoy. And a uh, simple night at home, some, some chicken thighs and mushrooms and a nice little gravy, I think, is... Uh, is, is very good. I'm feeling a little out of class. I, my repertoire, at least of dinner foods, is fairly simple. But I think that the one thing I sort of took with me is my my father's recipe uh, for French toast. I, I tend to be pretty good at that. And the key goes into picking the right the right bread. You need you need challah. It needs to be preferably a day old so that it absorbs the egg mixture. And then the key is a little bit of a uh, little bit of dark rum in that egg mixture for you. Really gives a little bit more kick. So I think uh, French toast might have to be my my best dish choice. But we're, we're all a very talented group of, uh, of chefs here, so I'm glad to hear that. Well, Dan, I think we're out of time. All out of time. That's it. Uh, we want to thank our guests. I will thank my guest, Philip Michaels. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And I will thank uh, my guest, Chris Breen. It was a pleasure, as always, Mr. Breen. I very much enjoyed it. Thank you. So until next time, from all of us here at the Clockwise Podcast, watch what you say. And keep watching the clock. Or the smartwatch, whatever. And eat more muffins. Bye.